I'm Dan Carell, CEO of the Digital Commerce Alliance, and this is Commerce Code, a weekly digital commerce podcast for leaders in card linking, loyalty and digital marketing, mobile wallets and payments, and financial data. Thanks for joining this running conversation with leaders in the industry. And if this podcast is helpful to you, come join us at the Digital Commerce Alliance. You can learn more at www.digcomall.org. This week, Dan is talking with Darby Sieben from Unbounce, a firm that pioneered landing pages and the engineering around customer conversion. But before that, Darby was a co-founder of RBC Ampli, an innovative cashback app from the Royal Bank of Canada. Dan and Darby talk about disruptive technologies, the path ahead in digital commerce, and Darby's career path through a series of top Canadian organizations. Before we get to that interview, first, has business travel finally bounced back to 2019 levels? Well, maybe. We'll unpack some data. Second, central bankers around the world, the impact on consumers, and the plight of the Japanese yen. And finally, who shops for groceries online and who doesn't? Baby boomers are getting digitized. Stay tuned, all that's ahead. Commerce Code is brought to you in part by Vantage Score. Nine of the top 10 banks and over 3,000 leading banks and fintechs use Vantage Score to predict and manage repayment risk. Learn more about the latest advances in credit scoring and how to grow your lending business by leveraging financial inclusion at VantageScore.com. Some evidence this week that travel spending may rebound for the long run. After a summer of revenge travel, there was doubt about the volume of business travel to follow. But major hotels group IHG reported this week that its U.S. business travel revenue was now back to pre-pandemic levels. Revenue per available room was up 2.7% for the three months from July through end of September, compared with 2019. It appears that at least some of the improvement is coming from higher prices rather than more utilization. We compared TSA checkpoint data for 2019 and 2022, lining up corresponding days of the week, and it shows that in 90 of the last 100 days, 2022 still had fewer air travelers than 2019. Eight of the days in which 2022 outperformed 2019 were at the end of August and beginning of September. There's a recent ray of hope for the travel sector, though. The other two days this year, when travel exceeded 2019 levels, were Sunday and Monday of this week. On those days, TSA cleared a total of 81,000 more travelers than in 2019. Central banks had provided the silent backdrop to the consumer economy for so long, but we've now spent a year learning about how their decisions impact not just the stock market, but consumer behavior and, of course, the day-to-day of digital commerce. Former Bank of Canada and Bank of England Governor Mark Carney said last week that prudent fiscal policy will be imperative to fighting inflation and financial instability. He also argued against government deficits arising from pandemic support. Add his voice to the very long list of experts who supporting the actions of central banks who are aggressively prioritizing inflation reduction in their monetary policies. As those policies continue to roll out, the collateral effects are gaining notice. The inability of developing countries to pay their dollar-denominated debts 
is one increasingly hard to ignore impact. Another is the fall in value of the Japanese yen. As U.S. interest rates rise, and as Japan's central bank continues to keep its interest rates relatively low, investors are flooding out of the yen and into the dollar. Japan spent an estimated $30 billion last Friday, on top of $20 billion a few weeks ago, to prop up the yen's value. It seems the central bank may need to raise interest rates, at the risk of stalling economic growth, just to keep the yen stable. The amounts of money involved in propping up the yen are not small. Japan is the world's third largest economy, with $5 trillion in gross domestic product, well ahead of Germany at $4.2 trillion in GDP. Finally, a little data for your calculations. Payments.com and PayPal recently released a study titled Super Apps for the Super Connected. And of course, it's about super apps. But the survey the study is based on has a lot of great data on a wide variety of issues that Commerce Code listeners will care about. We recommend grabbing a copy, which is free online. One of the data points that grabbed our attention, however, is a pretty complete breakdown by age of how likely consumers are to do something online versus the old-fashioned way. What's striking is how completely every generation has adopted digital channels for many areas where they wouldn't have to. For example, shopping for groceries online, where the usual old method could still be the dominant form, perhaps especially for older customers, it's not. At least, not entirely. The generation most likely to have shopped online for groceries, according to the survey, was, perhaps not surprisingly, millennials, where 75.6% of respondents said they had done so in the previous 30 days. But the second most likely were what the report calls bridge millennials, just a bit older than non-bridge millennials, it seems, who grocery shopped online at a 74.2% rate, followed close behind by Gen X at 74.1%, and even baby boomers and seniors, a category covering everyone born before 1965, were nearly 65% likely to have bought pickles and potato chips online at some point in the last month. But they weren't the least likely to have bought groceries online. That was actually the youngest group, Gen Z. This sent the Commerce Code research team scrambling into the library stacks to determine when these old souls were born and why on earth they weren't shopping for groceries online. It turns out they were born in 1999 or later. The reason they haven't shopped for groceries online lately is, well, they don't shop for groceries. Who needs groceries when Starbucks is just down the block? Join us on December 6th in Washington, D.C. for our DCA Summit, Harnessing the Disruption, Succeeding at Digital Commerce in a Recession Economy. Come join other executives from leading financial, retail, and technology firms to assess the path to success in the face of economic challenges and disruptive new technologies. Head over to our website at digcomall.org to reserve your spot today. Let's turn to Dan's conversation with Darby Sieben, the Chief Product Officer of Unbounce. Darby, thank you so much for joining us today on Commerce Code. Exciting to have you with us. And where are you joining us from? 
Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, really excited to be here. So joining today from uh, my home office in uh, Calgary, Alberta, which for maybe some of your international listeners, that's uh, in Canada. Well, there you go. And I'm looking as truly looking northwest out of my office tower window in Minneapolis. And I believe if I could see far enough and adjusting for the curvature of the earth, I could wave. You were at a place called Unbounce. And of course, I poked around the website. I tried to get a decent understanding of it. I'd love it in your words. What is it and what's exciting about what you're doing right now? Unbounce is one of those iconic Canadian startups. It's been around 13 years. It was one of the first companies, I think, in the world to really invent the landing page space. And that was, you know, an exciting journey. And obviously what's happened over the years, a lot of players have entered the landing page space. What Unbounce is sitting on is a massive amount of data where we really know what works now in terms of conversion. And what we're doing is we're pivoting this organization where landing pages was the heart of the business. And it's still a really, really important part. But we're really leaning into our data assets and how do we productionize and productize conversion intelligence across the board where we can drive, you know, using traffic, using content to increase performance. So it's, it's a really big data play now of moving away from just pure landing page building to conversion optimization using machine learning and AI. So it's machine learning enabled marketing that's helping, I'm assuming retailers, but you're going to tell me I'm not quite right there probably, to turn visitors into visitors that stay longer and most importantly, visitors who engage with the content and hopefully buy something. I've probably gotten that a little bit wrong. So just sharpen that because that sounds all very important and interesting stuff for our audience. You, you've captured it pretty well. So our first conversion intelligence product was Smart Traffic. You can build multiple variants of a page and our tool will optimize which variant is going to get presented to the user based on our algorithms. We have a second builder that we're building, which really leans into conversion intelligence. We call it a smart builder, which is think of it as we're giving eyes to the machine to see what's on the page, both in terms of what the conversion is, what the content is, what the heading is. So basically, we're optimizing content against traffic to focus on conversion for an end user. And so we have this vision of how do you actually eliminate A-B testing and create truly customized content based off of all of the information that we see and learn across our entire ecosystem. We have no PII data, so there's none of that. But how do we do all of that to then surface up better results? So I'm coming in, I'm using my, I don't know, Chrome browser or whatever, and I, I show up. There's some contextual information that's available about me enough that would allow for the machine itself to adjust the contents of the page in a way that targets me better. Yeah, so if you think of A-B testing, organizations will build a landing page and they'll have heading number one. They'll build a landing page with heading number two. They'll typically drive traffic to one, drive traffic to the other, and then do the analysis and say which one was better. Smart traffic gets rid of the analysis because it automatically will say, now I know B is better than A in this case, direct traffic there. Our smart builder is now going to say, with permission, if you allow us to start to change the content, you don't have to build multivariants. We'll automatically change the headline based on a whole bunch of different factors. Could be time of day, could be device that you're on, could be you know what source of traffic you're coming in from and really just focus on how do we help extend the marketer's dollar to get more conversion and extract you know, every single cent out of their marketing spend. 
you were at Ampli, and I think that's kind of where we at Cardlinks and then DCA kind of maybe f- first met you. I would love to just kind of hear what your experience looked like there and, and maybe just frame for the audience because I mean, a lot of people, I think, may not know what Ampli basically is, and then would just love to hear about that story from your perspective. Ampli was part of RBC Ventures. I started talking to Royal Bank at the end of 2017 and by the summer of 2018 joined the Ventures Group first as a consultant and I switched to full-time at the end of 2018 to lead Ampli, which was one of their larger ventures. And Ampli was focused on how do we use card linking and card aggregation to build a marketing platform for merchants to issue cash back for consumers based on purchasing at those clients. And the whole premise of Ampli as one of the ventures and all of the ventures was how does RBC build relationships with clients outside of the core bank? Ampli was a way for us to create a relationship with non-RBC banking customers um, and then strategically introduce the right moment in time to talk about the value of having an RBC credit card, where it feels like it's a natural flow as opposed to a disruptive advertising. Question I wanted to spend a bit of time on. We're, I think, in a, a season, we've got a bunch of programming at DCA kind of related to disruption and, and technological change and, frankly, changes in the economy that everyone's experiencing. And I, I think the Bank of Canada has been even more aggressive on the interest rate thing than the Fed, maybe. And so lots of stuff going on. With all of your experience, everything that's kind of changing, what do you think is either most the most important development or maybe a important development in how digital commerce is going to work and is going to change in the next year or two. As open banking starts to really come into play, I think that's going to be an interesting opportunity for incumbents to create deeper, meaningful relationships. And it's going to be an opportunity for challengers to innovate on product development to try to get consumers on that side. I think in the state of all of this is when you've got a good playing field where incumbents and challengers are really going at it to create value for consumers and businesses. Ultimately, consumers and businesses are going to win, which I think is a really, really good thing. I think on the marketing side, I'm still very bullish on the notion of card linking and card aggregation. I think, you know, the challenge all the players have here is just creating enough level of scale. It's going to allow them to play more into the marketing end of, hey, we can help you with your banking, Mr. Merchant, but let's help you actually acquire more customers and strengthen your balance sheet and make you a stronger business. Is there a clear winner from open banking spreading out more? So so the consumer, I, I think, I hope, is a clear winner from the furtherance of open banking. But I wonder, and I don't mean by company by company, I just mean maybe sector by sector. What's, what's in your view, the organization that clearly benefits from open banking? And maybe what's the organization profile that kind of is hurt by it? The companies that I think are going to benefit the most from the notion of open banking might actually be banking as service companies. So some of the toolkits underneath where you can start to build innovative solutions on top, we could see very interesting organizations come out of this where, you know, the service layer of how do I do all of the the KYC, and there's lots of companies that are already in this space. Open banking may allow more competitors to come in. I think the service layer companies could be quite interesting and they could see a big boom. Really interesting. And I I know that that's a potentially kind of tectonic force, but it also depends on a lot of factors in terms of how fast it moves. What do you think is distinctive in terms of what's going on in digital commerce in Canada? And is that different than anywhere else? Or is it really just a different flavor of what's happening everywhere? I think it's the latter. 
it's a different flavor of, of happening everywhere. I think maybe one thing that's maybe more nuanced within Canada is our Interact system and payment via debit card, which is very popular. An interesting development that just happened in Canada is the Competition Bureau has allowed now merchants to pass on the transactional fee that normally Visa and MasterCard would not allow a merchant to actually pass that on to the end consumer. So I'm very curious to see what the impact of that is going to be relative to people pulling out a credit card, potentially to pay if they have to pay an additional one and a half percent on top of that purchase, as opposed to pulling out their debit card, which is a lower cost for, for an end emergent. But I would say in most cases, Canada follows most of the patterns from the other industrialized markets, save for maybe our debit seems to be stronger. And now we're just going to have to watch what's going to happen with how many merchants are going to start to pass on the fees and what does that actually mean in terms of the behavior of consumers. That'll be an interesting thing to watch. I think that'll probably provide a data set for some economics grad students to chew on for their uh, dissertations as well. I mean, you've got a time before and a time after, and then hopefully the ability to analyze, you know, how does people's behavior change? Essentially, what's the elasticity of demand for the credit card once you add in the, the pricing more on the consumer side? To your point, this is an interesting development that might show us even more clearly. I mean, one would imagine that it would put debit cards even higher in the wallet. Yeah. And, you know, some of the data that I've seen, you know, I think the U.S. merchants can pass it on and it's maybe not as prevalent there. I have one concern just as I see it from a Canadian perspective and one challenge in Canada. It's a challenge and it's also an opportunity, but I think one challenge in Canada is most of our big categories are dominated by a small number of players. So we've got very, very strong, I mean, the grocery sector is dominated by a small group. The telecom sector is basically three players for the most part. And there just maybe is not sometimes a lot of optionality in Canada for consumers. And so that for me is the interesting dynamic that could happen, where I think in the US it's a little bit different. There's not really one player that kind of dominates nationally. You've got strong regional players, but Canada's a little bit different on that front. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. So you've had a fascinating and fun career. It's one of the reasons I was excited to get you on Commerce Code and have this conversation. And I'll leave it to you maybe to kind of just describe where have you been in your career and then where are you now? I'll go back a little bit and say, you know, I had an original goal in life to be a computer programmer. And so when I left high school, I went to university and the typical story of what happens, you know, I realized there's a difference between a good programmer and a great one. I would never be a great one. So I dropped out of school, started my first company in the 90s, hired my friends who were great programmers, sold that, built an agency uh, in, in Calgary, sold that company to Yellow Pages Group. I was with YPG for a dozen years, helping them transform from a print company to a digital focused organization. So that was a really, really interesting time. Left YP in, in 2017, joined Royal Bank of Canada to lead their Ampli product, which is part of their RBC Ventures. And as of 2022, you know, joined Unbounce as their chief product officer. That's great. We've got tech, we've got transformation of in huge incumbent organizations that I think we all recognize in some fashion, whether no matter what country we're in, right? There's those organizations that have all had to transform over time. Darby, this has been a, a fun and absolutely interesting conversation. I'm really glad we were able to, to grab you and catch back up. Thanks so much for your insights. And you know, we'll look forward to hearing more about Unbounce and how things go and also just catching you in some future episode of Commerce Code. Yeah, really looking forward to it. And thanks for the invite, Dan. Thanks, Darby. 
Commerce Code is a weekly podcast bringing you conversations with executives who are leading the way in digital commerce. If you like Commerce Code, your company should join the Digital Commerce Alliance and become part of our mission of advancing trade for good through standard setting, industry networking, conferences, and best practices. Check out our website at www.digcomall.org. On behalf of DCA, have a great week.